0: Welcome to episode 171 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we chat with Marta McDowell, author of Gardening Can Be Murder and DuPont Gardens of the Brandywine Valley. The plant profile is on Blue Mist Shrub, and we share what's going on in the garden as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with the last word on fun with pumpkins by Christy Page at the Food Gardening Network. This episode, we're joined by Marta McDowell, garden writer and speaker, and she's going to be talking to us all about her new books, and I say books plural. Welcome, Marta. (laughs) Thanks, Kathy. So you have been a busy, busy, busy garden writer, and you have two books out, one on the DuPont gardens and one on gardening can be murder or mystery writers and the use of the garden. But before we dive into all of that, we like to ask our guests on the Garden DC podcast, were they born with chlorophyll in their vein and a green thumb?
1: No, I think in my case, the gardener was made not born (laughs) unless it skipped a generation, Kathy, because uh, (laughs) my parents, I think, did a lot of weeding when they were children. My father grew up on a farm. My mother's father had a huge vegetable garden out in the country and I think they just pulled too many weeds. So they, you know, they kept the the yard tidy, and that was about it. Uh, but I started gardening when I first had a little bit of earth of my own. So I was in my twenties, and I. Basically memorized the White Flower Farm catalog at the time, (laughs) which was in the 90s, and uh, bought a lot of plants, killed a lot of plants, and, you know, just learned to love plants. And I've been gardening ever since.
0: Mm -hmm. I think White Flower Farm was my first garden catalog, too, now that you mention it, Marta. It had
1: a ton of... Horticultural information, how to pronounce the botanical names, beautiful Mm. pictures back in the day when you couldn't point your smartphone at a plant and press the information button. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: I think uh, twinning with that was Wayside Gardens for me.
1: Okay, yes, absolutely. That was another one of my frequently dipped into, uh, and uh, I guess it was the Daffodil Mart at the time, Uh, you know. Now, Brent and Becky's bulbs, you know, those were really my go to places. And, you know, I still have plants from Hmm. all of those places, even though I have moved several times, the plants have moved with me.
0: Wonderful. And so was your career ambition in the writing field? I
1: worked in the corporate world for 20 years. I always wrote, re- regardless of, you know, I was working in insurance and, and systems, but I always had writing and sort of teaching related jobs. Uh, and before I left that job, they funded my midlife crisis by giving me a separation package. Uh, I had started Working on this idea of becoming something in full time horticulture, be it writing, teaching, actually gardening, design, and I've done like all of them. So it's always kind of hard for me to pick a title because I still have my fingers in a lot of things, but they're all related to growing things.
0: Mm -hmm. I would say similar, wearing many hats. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <You bet>. <laughs> <laughs> and so let's talk a little bit about your garden and where your garden like your zone your soil
1: yes i am a zone six garden uh quickly inching towards six b um i am in chatham new jersey uh chatham is in the north kind of east part of new jersey uh, we're about i don't know 30 miles from Manhattan. Uh, it's in a, you know, the kind of the Piedmont area, so it's rolling. It's kind of ridges, you know, ridge and valley. Uh, edge of the old Wisconsin glacier. So every time you stick a soil in my uh, you know, in my in my back 40, you it goes thunk. <laughs> I have about I don't know, probably between a third and a half an acre, a long skinny plot. So tons of shade in the front, total deer country, fenced in back with sunny patches and a lot of shade. So half of it is just woods zero lawn. Actually, the front is also zero lawn. My lawn is like the size of a postage stamp. So it's really, it's my, also my incredible shrinking lawn, which my spouse reminds me like every year my lawn gets a little smaller and soon it will be nothing, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Or my so-called lawn because, uh, you know, my philosophy is, well, if it's green and you mow it, that's my lawn
0: (laughs) because I don't put any chemicals on the lawn. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, I think a lot of our listeners can relate to that and that many of them are mid-Atlantic growers and gardeners and that they can relate to shoving that spade or shovel in the ground and then having it reverberate on them. (laughs) (laughs) And do you have any clay soil or are you alkaline? How are you?
1: No, it's it's clay. Uh, the pH is, you know, is good for most mm-hmm. things, you know, because so it's sort of, uh, you know, that sweet spot for growing plants. Um, you know, the soil retains water, unlike my sister in South Carolina, where it had to be the bottom of an ocean where she is because it's all sand. Uh well, you get that on the edge of glaciers too. But anyway, uh, her mm-hmm. soil is entirely different from mine, which was a real shocker when I went down there to help her with her plantings. Mm. And what else can I tell you about my little spot? I told you lots of shade, mostly flower. I have to say mostly flowers and ornamentals. I have a big community garden plot. Again, lots of cut flowers down there, but also, you know, the usual tomatoes, beans, etc. And I have some raised little raised boxes near the house um, that I also grow vegetables. I grow a lot of herbs because you can grow them where the deer are. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I grow a little bit of everything. I have way too many
0: plants. <sighs> But what is
1: enough when it comes to plants?
0: Exactly, exactly. Um, Definitely, I think many of us can relate to that. So let's turn to your writing career and the books you have authored. So a lot of the books you've written have been about other authors and their gardens. So one on Beatrice Potter. And can you tell me a little bit about how you gravitated to those topics?
1: Sure. So entirely accidental, except for the fact that, you know, gardening and reading are kind of neck and neck for the things I really, really love to do. Uh, and I was an American studies major in college, which, which was the, the best major ever because, you know, basically you could take anything if it had the word American in the title and uh, Except maybe not. I don't know about forgetting a job. For that, I took some computer science. But um, I had so much fun. It's a ton of writing and a ton of reading. Uh, but they're all things I'm interested in. So you know, I'm so here I am in this in this corporate career. I'm on a business trip visiting insurance agencies in Massachusetts. So you know, you can imagine that. And I had a spare afternoon with nothing scheduled, so I picked up a brochure in a rest area and saw Emily Dickinson Homestead, is what it was called at the time. And so I drove to Amherst. I got on the last tour uh, of the day. Actually, it was only me, so I had, you know, an individual tour, and I found out that she, in addition to being a poet, was a gardener. And it opened a door that has, I have never shut, right? So here I am, you know, working 60 hour weeks and starting to research Emily Dickinson and her gardening interests. So that kind of really changed, I would say Emily Dickinson changed my life uh, because it gave me a way to think about these two things that I really loved, uh, gardening and, and reading, in a different way. And, you know, from then on, I was always sort of on the lookout, right? If any of your listeners have any ideas, send them along. (laughs) I'm always looking for writers who garden. And so from then on, most of my subjects, you know, kind of bumped into me uh, in different ways. And, uh, And I've pretty much stayed on that track with the exception of all the president's gardens, which came about in an in a different way. I don't know, different story, but (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's how it happened. And so it it was really serendipity and, and aren't so many things in life serendipity.
0: Mm -hmm. But it's great that you were able to combine those two passions of reading and gardening and, you know, research together.
1: Yeah. It's been so much fun. And it's still fun. And so, you know, how wonderful is it when you can work at something that really, you know, charges you up? It's not that it's not work, because it is work. Trust me, it is work. Uh, But, but it's work that I want to come back to all the time.
0: Mm -hmm. You're not questioning why am I doing this all the time?
1: <laughs> yes, which I did when I was, you know, giving the latest corporate philosophy to insurance agents out in the field who frankly didn't care.
0: <laughs> oh, so let's turn to your two new books and we'll do them in order. And first is DuPont Gardens of the Brandywine Valley. And I must say, it is the quintessential coffee table book because it is not something that is easily read in bed as I tried to do over the last week
1: <laughs> <laughs> right it, it is it is got a lot of weight uh, because it's primarily a book of photography so Larry Letterman is a photographer a very interesting person uh, he was a mergers and acquisitions attorney for his career uh, he took up photography in retirement and has spent a lot of time uh, and you know a lot of his artistic effort at the New York Botanical Garden uh, where he's published several books uh, but the one that that is you know kind of the most prominent for me is trees of the New York Botanical so he loves to photograph trees. That's, how he, how, that's kind of his origin story for how he became a photographer. And uh, so he and his editor uh, at, at uh, Monticelli contacted me and said, would I be interested in writing the essays to accompany this book That is about five of the DuPont family gardens in the Brandywine Valley.
0: Hmm. And it is such a beautiful book. His photographs are amazing. And having visited all five of those many times, I can say he really captures the feel of all of them.
1: So you were at an advantage to me when I was starting out because Mm -hmm. I had visited Three of them. So, uh, you know, when the editor said, you know, it is these gardens, I was quite familiar with Longwood and Mount Cuba and Winter Tour. But the other two, Hagley and Nemours, were blank spots on the canvas (laughs) that had to be (laughs) filled in. So... Uh, that was very interesting. Uh, the other interesting part was uh, these are, for the most part, these are absolutely mammoth gardens. They are huge as you might expect from gardens of the DuPonts. So they had money. They like to have country houses and they like to have their country houses surrounded with acreage for a variety of reasons, uh, including they were also interested in agriculture in addition to horticulture. And uh, and so to get one of those gardens into 2,000 words, you know, in one way you could barely list their, you know, these are their elements. (laughs) So I had to... That that was the biggest puzzle with that book was how to say something significant about the gardens and their history in such a small number of words.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some of them, you know, especially the Hagley, which is pretty much the origin garden for them, that is a lot of history to pack in there.
1: Yes, because the Duponts arrived at what is now called Hagley, but. Then they called it Eleutherian Mills uh, in 1802. So this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's a lot of years. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you, so you say Eleutherian Mills. I've always said Eleutherian. I never knew how to pronounce it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, don't, you know, I think that's the way to say it. Uh, and I and i was doing my best to imitate the way they say it in, you know, in the library at Hagley. <laughs> so <laughs> excuse my French pronunciation if you have any, uh, any listeners who are fluent in French, but that's mm-hmm. the best I can do. <laughs> hmm.
0: And so for this book, uh, I guess I'll give you the stumper question of, of the five, do you have a favorite?
1: Hmm. You know, that's very hard because th- they are quite different. And that was deliberate on the part of the, the DuPont garden maker generation. Mm-hmm. They wanted each of their properties to have some unique characteristic within the the context of, you know, they are all in this kind of rolling landscape and all in, you know, like a 10-mile radius. I mean, so they, they are... Uh, it's quite a compact area which makes it great if you're visiting these gardens because you could take a weekend preferably a long weekend (laughs) where you feel very energetic and do all five um so do i have a favorite you know that that's all you know people always ask me that with my books too uh in a way i guess i I don't know. Every time I think, "Oh yes, it's that one," I go, "No, no." But what about that one? So I'm going to say no. I don't really have a favorite. I, Mount Cuba is very close to my heart because I saw it before it was open to the public,
2: hmm. uh,
1: so it was still actually a family garden. Um, and I, um, I'm so enamored of the the work they do there in terms of research on you know native plants and plant testing for for varieties that will grow for the home gardener, Um, and also their displays are absolutely breathtaking. So Mm -hmm. I think the first time I was there in the spring and saw their kind of west slope forest walks underplanted with all of these uh, spring ephemerals that are native to the Piedmont, I just, you know, it's like I wanted to burst into tears. It was so gorgeous. Mm-hmm. But that's also true, you know, of each of the gardens. You know, winter tour, if you're there and you see the March Bank, or you're there and you see the azaleas, or you go to Longwood, and it's, you know, it's the weather's not good that day, and you walk through the conservatories, and you're just, you know, stunned. Uh, I, I, I fell in love with Hagley the first time – I, I visited. Uh, the head gardener took me through uh, Louise Crown and Shield's sort of Italianate ruin because it really is a ruin at now. It hasn't been maintained and I you know, I hope they can stabilize it. Um, it is the most haunting garden space I've seen on this side of the Atlantic. And Nemours has just this regal kind of serenity, uh, you know, in different lights and different times of day. So they're all really special.
0: Yeah. I would say that would be a tough choice between them very much so, but I think Mount Cuba, the one you started with because of its intimacy and it's Mm -hmm. more human scale, that might be my personal favorite of the five.
1: Yeah. It was interesting to me because all of these gardens weren't really used as family gardens. You know, children played there, they played in the pools, they had family parties. Um, And while they're, you know, for mere mortals, uh, like most of us who couldn't even fathom having that much resource to expend on our gardens... They do have a quality of, you know, these were places that were loved, and while they had a lot of staff, the owners were extremely involved, you know, Mm -hmm. that varied, you know, by the individual, but they were very engaged with these gardens. This wasn't like, oh, you know, I'm going to have somebody come in and do my garden and I'm going to just appear once in a while and enjoy it. They were really uh, all involved in it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Here, here. And if you haven't visited all five, this book will definitely give you motivation to do so and inspiration and maybe even some longing over the winter months to get out there.
1: The wonderful thing for me was, you know, I I went to each garden, I, you know, I went around with their experts, sometimes in gardening, and sometimes in the history of the garden, and sometimes both. And then I did a lot of research. But of course, when I sat down to write, unlike Larry, who was photographing them you know I could do it from my desk in New Jersey I didn't have to physically be there Mm -hmm. and as I was writing he was sending me the images that were selected you know that he was going to be submitting for the book and then you know they go went through a selection process but I got to then see these gardens again through his eyes and he has a really amazing ability to capture kind of the, almost the intent of the garden composition that sometimes, you know, when I was walking through it and, you know, you'd, I'd see, you know, acres and acres of gardens and so many different parts of these gardens in, in one or two days that I got to experience them again through his eyes. And so, you know, his images are just exquisite, and I, you know, I think that even if you've been to these gardens, you know, through your whole lives, you will see them in a new way through Larry's photographs.
0: Mm-hmm. So, a great holiday gift idea, especially for the other gardeners in your life. So, we're gonna do a one eighty, Marta, <laughs> and talk about your other new book. And I'm gonna read the entire title because I think it is so funny. Uh, Gardening can be murder. Subtitled, How Poisonous Poppies, Sinister Shovels, and Grim Gardens Have Inspired Mystery Writers.
1: (laughs) I'm glad you like it. And I will say, (laughs) you know, this is the the sixth book that I've done with Timber Press. And it's the first time they've used my title. (laughs) Ah good good to know (laughs) although the editor i have to give the editor credit he did the subtitle Mm -hmm. (laughs) he asked me you know is this all right can i do this and you know we (laughs) talked about a few of the words but uh he came up with the you know the the extra hook so
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. so we're talking about the book and it goes through um Starts off with the history of mystery writing, um, which starts off with Edgar Allan Poe, a favorite of mine, and then goes into the French novel, which the name just flew out of my head, and then back to the British and American versions of Gothic novels, and on to our modern mystery novels, and how many of them have used gardening as a setting, gardening as part of maybe the murder itself and or a clue to the murder but we'll parse those apart in a second but first i wanted to dive into the similarities of gardening and being a detective Um, so i think that's part of the reason why mystery writers might be using gardening so much in their stories so what can we say about how gardeners and detectives are similar
1: you know what garden isn't a mystery Let's mm-hmm. face it, you know, one year a plant will do beautifully and the next year, same plant, same spot, and for some reason it doesn't, it doesn't thrive. I find this, you know, particularly with with annuals where I'll put mm-hmm. an annual in a spot, you know, and it goes gangbusters. The next year, not so much. And I, I think I have done the same thing in terms of, you know, feeding it, watering it. It's got the same exposure. <laughs> Nothing. You know. And then you go, why? Why is that? Uh, and, you know. Or why is this hole in this leaf, you know, tracking down what is the pest or disease or, you know, whatever that is affecting this plant. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of it, Uh, you know, that it just always is a puzzle and isn't isn't that fun on most days.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I would say it's almost literal because you're trying to figure out a lot why something died. (laughs) Like literally you're uh, trying to find out that mystery. And then of course, there's also the coincidence that maybe we both use a loop or a magnifying glass as the classic Sherlock Holmes does.
1: <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> that's very true. Good point. I like that. And, you know, sometimes those pests do leave fingerprints. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they leave mm-hmm. a trail for us to track down. And, you know, who among us has not had that sort of homicidal instinct when they see that friendly groundhog has moved from the clover in the so-called lawn to the tulips
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i would say that's you know the commonality of gardeners and the murderers in mystery books is is almost more aligned because yeah there's so many things i was looking at in gardening uh that equates us to killers um (laughs) Sad but true. <laughs> Sad but true. Um, so I was looking at, obviously, weeding. You know, just the act of weeding. Selecting one plant over another um, is an act of, of plant murder in that case.
1: Yes, it it is. You know, we we have this sort of control thing of we are going to intervene in one way or another.
0: Mm-hmm. And then I was making a little short list of ways of violence in the garden. So deadheading, you know, that's, you know, right there on the nose, thinning seedlings. So, you know, such a nice little way of saying, I'm going to kill all the little babies that I don't need.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, you know, Kathy, I will tell you a story. A a friend of mine, uh, her spouse could not, bring himself to kill uh baby spider plants Mm. which meant of course their house was jammed with spider plants (laughs) to the point where you know i don't you know eventually they were going to have to move out because it was going to be like that old star trek episode of the trouble with tribbles you know it was just gonna be (laughs) they were gonna have to vacate the space and let the spider plants take over. So, yes, you know, that is that is a part of it. Uh, you know, even though now, you know, in my circle there are, you know, Facebook plant swap groups where you can say, "I just dug this out of my garden and it's in a bucket on my driveway if you want." You know, to try not to kill them. Uh, you know, or you can tell yourself, well, you know, they're going into the compost pile, so I'm not actually killing them. I am, like, recycling them into the soil. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely how I make myself feel better. <laughs>
1: yes. And so I wonder if murderers get started that way.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm just adding to the compost pile. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then I was jotting down overly aggressive aggressive pruning and cleaning out a bed. And I think those are ways for people to get out their aggression sometimes and almost therapy where it doesn't have to be uh, an actual homicide, say, if you get in a fight with a partner or spouse.
1: Yes. And, you know, I have a tool that is literally the product name is Root Slayer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you want to get out some aggressions get out this thing it's sharp it's jagged uh it's heavy you can really whack at some sapling or some shrub that has suckers <laughs> Hmm.
0: yeah i'd say you touch on the tools in the book and so many of the tools in the garden can be Uh, damaging if not deadly Um, and not only to the victim but to the garden themselves I'm always like shocked about the things that they allow gardeners to have (laughs) sometimes.
1: Yes and I will tell you if you try to go through TSA security (laughs) with your secateurs (laughs) with your pruning shears uh, you will be nabbed uh, because I was going, you know, so I was. I think I was going down to my sister's to help her prune, and I didn't even think about it, because I don't think of <laughs> it as a weapon any more than I think of my knitting needles <laughs> as a weapon. But there mm-hmm. you
0: go. <laughs> exactly. I would say all garden implements need to be in the checked luggage. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, definitely. Hmm.
0: So let's start off um, with some of the mysteries that you describe in the book. Um, so you don't give spoilers, which is great for those who haven't read them or not familiar with them. But why do you think so many mystery writers are drawn to a garden setting or garden theme in their books?
1: Well, for some of them, they are gardeners. So that old saw about, you know, write about what you know, you know, comes naturally to them. Uh, Others look for different, you know, skills and elements and traits that they can give to their characters. And, you know, so you need various plot devices. And then, you know, gardening will come up. Uh, I think that's why there are so many British garden mysteries that, you know, I gardened in England for six months, and you know, visitors walking through these gardens would be discussing these plants with the proper botanical nomenclature, which is not something that you often hear in public gardens in the U.S. So there's there's a different level of garden literacy there. So I think that's why there are so many British garden themed. Um, the, you know, books of detective and crime fiction, um, you know, and then it's fun, right. It's fun to write
0: about gardens. So I think that's part of it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's that affinity between growing and the life cycle in the garden that, you know, could be used for parallels. And, you know, you talk a little bit in the book about red herrings and using clues in the garden, um, throughout a book but it might not be the main theme of the mystery
1: right right and and, i mean even for me in developing this book so i think the list of of novels and short stories that i put together for the end of the book and it it is on my website too um is a hundred books um that i use to create this survey um Sometimes I encounter my own red herrings. So, you know, I thought, oh, no orchids for Miss Blandish. That'll be perfect. I can use that. And that will let me have a little bit of, you know, sort of hard-boiled crime fiction included. But the the funny thing was there are no orchids in the book. No orchids (laughs) for Miss Blandish other than on the title page and the cover. (laughs) So, oops. Same with Black Dahlia. You know, it's like, okay, well, this is like... Jeez. <laughs> uh, so that was a red herring. Uh, there's one I'm reading now called Down the Garden Path, which is kind of a vintage mystery, a British mystery. But again, I, I, other than there are characters named Primrose and Hyacinth, I don't, I don't think that there is really a garden in this book. So I'll <laughs> we'll see if that gets added to my online list or not. <laughs>
0: Hmm. I don't want to call it false advertising, but hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And then there's always the occasional person named garden or Mr. Gardener, which has nothing to do with gardening. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think my favorite section of your book is the chapter on clues in the garden and how mystery writers use, you know, either, a plant part, or something that they can um, say this grows only in South America in this one little country, so it has to be so and so. You know, that's almost like modern detective work. I think about the Smithsonian labs being sent in a, a sample of mud from somebody's shoe, and it identifying them to a specific place. But what I really loved about the clue chapter is the acknowledgement of plant blindness, and so that allows the mystery writer to sneak in clues because of the pervasive plant blindness in our society.
1: Yes. Uh, In fact, I was, I was looking at a a bookshelf full of gardening books in a bookstore. Uh, Was it just yesterday? (laughs) It was the day before yesterday I was in Missouri. So (laughs) my head is still spinning. Uh, And there is a new book that I've added to my, you know, to be read list called in of plants mm-hmm. and you know it's it's kind of that same thing of people don't always notice them right they they're all around them you know they're surrounded by this curtain of green but it's just a backdrop as opposed to individual living things uh, and so that does you know the mystery writer has got to plant clues and if you're going to do it well, you don't want the reader to be able to guess, at least not to guess easily. Because I know, at least as a reader, if I'm reading a piece of crime fiction or watching an adaptation on television, you know, or an original screenplay, if I guess it, I feel cheated. (laughs) It's like, well, that's not the way it's supposed to work. I'm supposed to be surprised. And so, you know, plant blindness, which is something that all garden lovers try to combat, uh, is something that really does help the crime writer.
0: Mm -hmm. I love your phrase of planting clues.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and you know, it was fun for me to, to pick out these plant and garden elements and then track them down myself you know, and, and find out more about them because I certainly didn't know all about them when I, you know, when I, you know, I come across, uh, you know, like Caltrop and it's a it's a plant that occurs in the desert and so Tony Hellerman used it in one of his novels um, and, and then I learned that its common name comes from this ancient roman weapon which is sort of like if you can imagine a a kid's jack you know like jacks where you play jacks Mm -hmm. but all sharpened it's you know it was this metal thing that they would cast out them you know in the hundreds in front of oncoming armies uh, to damage feet of of soldiers and animals which is you know it's just kind of—it's horrible to think about. Yikes! Yeah, yeah. But it's like it's—it's it's a seed with a very sharp spur that will stick into hiking boots and sneakers and things like that. So, you know, Tony Hillerman used it as something that stuck to the the uh, victim's clothing. Hmm. So, you know, as you say, it's like this—you know—plant forensics. Um, and and it really is still used uh someone at the M- missouri botanical garden yesterday told me that you know their lab was featured on one of these 48 hours television shows for the the part they played in apprehending a criminal from mm-hmm. from plant elements
0: yeah i could see like pollen or seed release being integral to a plot as well in in solving a mystery or a novel um So let's talk a little bit about the motive chapter. Uh, Gardening made me do it. And I was like, (laughs) how could gardening be a motivation (laughs) to any murder? And then I love that you talk about its motivation for many things, including perfectionism, and then also how competitive gardening is. And I never thought of gardening really as a competitive sport, but you're right. It can be. Oh,
1: yeah. And, it, it, you know, it's not just flower shows, although, you know, that is, you know, the most visible and prominent competition uh, among gardeners that you'll find and, you know, sanction. But it's also just, you know, who's got what? Uh, you know, I've, I've gardened next to uh, the same neighbor for 30 years. He has a glorious garden and yes, along the border there have been sort of very uh, you know understated turf wars, no pun intended, but you know what I mean. Like, well, you know who's going to plant on this on this space? <laughs> I always say, you know, gardeners have this territorial imperative, right, where you want to take over more. St- base <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know gee the, these these trees are getting a little big you know he's got this japanese umbrella pine, this cyedopides that was this cute little thing when he planted it and now it's you know it's really big and it's shading out my roses and yet <laughs> you know <laughs> they're good neighbors and so i don't complain but once in a while like i'll snip it. <laughs> Snip his back surreptitiously. Don't tell him. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure he does the same on the other side. <laughs> so <laughs> I think we're quite even. Uh, his garden is always much tidier than mine.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would say the the battle for sunlight that could be motivation right there.
1: Yes, yes, I totally agree. In fact, <laughs> uh, you know that they had they had some storm damage where trees came down and I really had to work at being sympathetic, you know, you know <laughs> these trees. it's like, Oh yeah, that's really too bad. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to read a great, great short story about competitive gardening, I would say that there's a short story called weeds by Ruth Rendell, or maybe it's Rendell. I'm sorry, I don't. I'm not sure of her pronunciation. Um, that is that, that is kind of spine tingling.
0: Mm. I'm just going to read between the lines there <laughs> 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 of who those weeds could be.
1: Hmm. Well, so. the the, the, uh, the quote that I pulled out from that short story to head off that little section is the neatness of the gardens was almost oppressive.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like a
1: garden open day. And I don't, you know, if any of your listeners have ever hosted a garden tour, you know that it is, you know, it's super stressful. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, you know, one can imagine a murder happening. <laughs> sort of got tied up into that process.
0: Mm-hmm. So much effort goes into it, and then you hear some of the comments coming through. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe never never be present for your open garden. <laughs> yes, I
1: was, and this was a public garden. I once worked in an iris garden. I only worked there for one season, And there, there are you know, for a for a a garden that focuses on a single genera, it is a certain level of frustration because you work you know eleven months of the year to keep it just right, and then that the twelfth month is total chaos because. Everybody wants to come see the irises around Memorial Day because it's it's glorious. And I remember, you know, working out there with, you know, then there's tremendous deadheading during that one month. And I'm deadheading and I hear someone go, these are really pretty gladiolas. And I just (laughs) wanted to go, okay, I quit.
0: (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Hopefully, you didn't have like a scythe in your hand at that time. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> that would have been justifiable homicide right there.
1: <laughs> yeah, someone asked me, uh, "Did my like was my husband worried when I was writing this book?" <laughs> <laughs> And I said no. But then yesterday I was in a bookshop and I bought a dish towel that says, be nice to me or I'll poison your food.
0: Yeah, I would think um, you might be the number one suspect <laughs> as the, as the yes. author of the Gardening Can Be Murder book. So, um, Marta, you need to keep your nose clean and fly straight and right. <laughs>
1: you bet. You bet. Don't leave my fingerprints around anywhere, at least.
0: <laughs> <laughs> at least. So let's um, turn to, I think, what our listeners will be fascinated by the most is the deadly plant section um, and some of those favorite deadly plants of authors. And I would say Monk's Hood is probably that top one because it is a scary, scary plant to me.
1: It is. And I'm always amazed. Every year, you know, in around September – I'll start to see them in bloom at the garden centers on display with no warning label. You know, like, don't plant this near your vegetable garden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, if, you're, if, if your partner does not know what a parsnip looks like, <laughs> make sure... That you don't plant this anywhere near where the parsnips are growing, mm-hmm. <laughs> because it is it's super toxic, and you know how mm-hmm. uh, well. I like, mean, yeah. we do have lots of plants. I mean, there is one right behind me here in my in my workspace that is a you know it's a it's an indoor plant for this zone, but it's a Euphorbia tirucalli. It's a pencil plant. Pencil plant. And you know, this one, this this variety has been selected for very um, colorful stems and so it's called sticks on fire. And you know, it's toxic, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Among the euphorbias, some are more toxic than others. And they but they all, you know, have a sting if you get a lot of sap
0: on you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you worry about pets or small children around them, too.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, a friend of mine was cat-sitting for her daughter, and the cat started eating her Diffenbachia and got really ill. So, you know, you just, yeah, have to be careful. (laughs) Uh, But, yes, they've been really um, popular in crime fiction, I think also because... Uh, some of the great early crime writers like Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers, uh, they had worked in pharmacies. And so they knew a lot about poisons. Um, And so they got employed a lot uh, Mm -hmm. for that, you know, not who done it, but, but (laughs) how done it.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And I was shocked at the inclusion of rhubarb because uh, you know, obviously we all have had rhubarb pie and eaten rhubarb, but that the foliage is so toxic.
1: Yes. So uh, I think it would have to be in a very high concentration. So, you know, that, that was worked through in the plot. And it was interesting because I got to the author of that book because I had gotten in touch with Amy Stewart, who I know a little bit and, She, you know, in addition to writing so many wonderful books that are connected with plants, so she wrote Flower Confidential and Wicked Plants, and then she wrote a book called Wicked Bugs, and then she wrote a book called The Drunken Binders. I mean, she's an absolute genius for coming up with great ideas. She turned her talents to writing crime fiction and wrote Mm -hmm. a series that, uh, you know, her protagonist is a historical figure who was the first female, I think, deputy or sheriff in New Jersey. And so really interesting. She's written quite quite a few of them. And so I just took a shortcut and sent her an email and said, do any of your cop sister's mysteries feature plants or gardening? Thinking, well, you know, she knows a lot about plants, so she would be a Mm -hmm. natural. Uh, And she said, no, but you should contact Naomi Hirahara. And she's written some really interesting garden mysteries. So Naomi, one of her series, she's written a lot of different things. She's a, a journalist and a historian. Uh, but one of her mystery series, her protagonist is based on the life of her father, who was a first-generation gener- Japanese-American uh And as a adolescent, was sent back to Japan for kind of a traditional education, got stuck in Japan because of the Second World War, uh, survived the bombing at Hiroshima, came back to America. And, you know, just as he's coming back to America as an adult you know, can't get work like his, you know, his friends and family because they're all coming out of the American internment camps. Mm. And so in Southern California, one job that Japanese Americans could get was being landscape gardeners. So that's what he did. That's what her brother did for a living. And uh, and so she bases the character of Mas Arai, her sleuth, Uh, on her father and so the sleuth is a landscape gardener and there are a lot of uh, plant elements in it so one of the books does feature rhubarb Um, I asked her if she ate rhubarb and she said no I don't like it (laughs) I love rhubarb. I have a Mm -hmm. lot of it growing right in the middle of my flower garden because I think it's also a very ornamental plant Mm -hmm. and I like a plant that, you know, not only is it ornamental, but I can eat it. (laughs) So, so Mm. I really like it in the garden.
0: Excellent. Yeah, that's a series I'm definitely going to have to check out. And I noticed um, you also note in the book, aside from, the many famous poisonous plants that do exist commonly in a lot of our gardens, that some mystery writers include fictional plants. And why do you think that is?
1: I think sometimes it is a way to get around... (laughs) (laughs) fact-checking.
0: That's what I thought you were going to (laughs) say. Right.
1: So, you know, if you're not a botanist, then you can get like, you can kind of get lost in the technicalities of, you know, well, how much, you know, nux vomica, AKA strychnine, would someone have to ingest to blah, blah, blah. And so it it just like eliminates that like for mm-hmm. me i was worried about the chapter on you know pick your poison plant because i'm not a botanist i'm not a scientist luckily one of my cousins is a toxicologist <laughs> so you can imagine dear steve would you mind reviewing my chapter <laughs> Because, you know, I just wanted to make sure I had the, you know, the verbiage correct and that Mm -hmm. I wasn't out of line. And he did really help with corrections, even though he studies spider toxins Mm. (laughs) rather than plant toxins.
0: Well, that could be a great mystery novel right there. (laughs) Yes,
1: it could. Mm -hmm. Yes, it could. Hmm.
0: but a great resource to have in the family. And yeah, I was thinking also about, you don't talk too much about it because I think we're keeping it on the positive side, but there are some mystery novels, novelists that totally miss the mark, right? On some (laughs) of their plant use. Um, Did you not include a few of those on purpose?
1: Well, I am very annoying to watch movies And and you know television programs with because I'll go those don't bloom together that would never be blooming those are fake you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's kind of a burden Uh, yeah I I think I only mention one of them when I don't know some author talked about a character falling. Into the thorny arms of the pieris, <laughs> pieris <laughs> japonica, and it's like hmm. eh, no, 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 that's not true. They they don't have thorns. Nice try. Uh, so yes, I'm I'm bad. You know, I I proofread menus. You know, I'm I'm a very <laughs> annoying person. Really.
0: <laughs> yeah, I always said that you know they have continuity editors on some TV and movie shows for. The medicine and other things but they really should have a gardening continuity editor for all books and film and media
1: they absolutely should you're right we should yes we should we should promote ourselves you know as you know the the garden the garden consultants with some really major fees i think you and i kathy could like work on this
0: Absolutely. I think a a whole agency of us could be employed.
1: (laughs) Yes, all around the country. So, you know, (laughs) listeners, keep us in mind.
0: Well, I do want to say, Marta, that in Washington Gardener Magazine, our October 2023 issue, we gave Gardening Can Be Murder an excellent review, and the reviewer was Beth Pye Lieberman. Um, so, our listeners can check that out as well. And I hope that you enjoyed that review if you've seen it yet. Uh,
1: I will look it up as soon as we are off this call. (laughs) (laughs) I
0: I will send you a copy of that PDF so you can have that. And how can our listeners contact you?
1: So it is really easy to find me. My website is martamcdowell.com. I am on Instagram as at Marta McDowell. (laughs) So I'm not hiding. Uh, They can contact me through my website or, you know, through LinkedIn. Uh, But there's a contact me on my webpage. Uh, The book is available certainly directly from Timber Press. Uh, Um, Both books are available on all of the usual online sites and your local indie bookstores. Please support your local indie bookstores. We love them. They are an endangered species and, you know, we just really want it want to keep them going because they are wonderful parts of a community. Uh, I, we've lost our local bookstore. And if I hit the lottery, that's the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to bankroll someone to open a bookstore in my town. <laughs> mm.
0: Great thought. So thank you so much, Marta, for sharing about both your new books. And is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about either book?
1: Well, I just think they're both fun in their own ways. Um, and, you know, one is, you know, I guess I would say a more serious look at these five DuPont gardens for sure. It's, you know, the, what I wrote was all about their unique histories. And uh, I had a blast writing Gardening for uh, can be Murder. Uh, and I hope people have a good time reading it.
0: Thank you, Marta.
2: Thanks so much, Kathy. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
0: Caryopterus plant profile. Blue mist shrub, Caryopterus species, also known as bluebird or blue spirea, is a small shrub that flowers from late summer to early fall for several weeks it typically blooms in shades of blue. It is usually between two to three feet tall. Most Caryopteris are hardy from USDA zone nine down to zone five and some to zone four. It blooms best in full sun and needs average garden soil that is not heavily enriched with fertilizer or it can flop. Caryopteris is a low maintenance plant In the spring, cut it back to about 8 to 12 inches tall. It blooms on new wood, so the old part will not flower. Caryopteris is a deciduous shrub, and its flowers, leaves, and stems give off a faint, pleasant scent that make it deer-resistant. It is fairly heat and drought-tolerant as well. It has no major pests or diseases. Best of all, pollinators love it as much as you do. The tried and true cultivars are dark night with deep blue flowers and longwood blue which has sky blue flowers. There are newer compact cultivars such as petite blue and first choice. There are also forms with yellow or chartreuse foliage such as sunshine blue, worcester gold, and almost gold. Caryopteris, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, I was gifted a pot of Hemiboe Subcapitata Glossy False syningia and it is doing wonderfully right now. It's blooming in full shade. The flowers are these big two-inch tubular looking things. It's really quite stunning. Uh, The toad lilies are looking great, as well as the asters and the Nippon Daisy, and I have the American Witch Hazel also in bloom in my home garden. Over at the community garden plot, I still haven't pulled the tomatoes and peppers and put in the garlic because it's been so mild and such great weather. I'm just still picking off of both of those as well as zucchini. So maybe another week or so, and then I'll put in my garlic. Some local gardening events if you're in the greater Washington, D.C. area that you might want to attend include the Ujamaa Cooperative Farming Alliance's Fall 2023 workshops and they are taking place in Akakik, Maryland on Friday, November 3rd and Saturday, November 4th. You can find out more information about that and register at ujamafarms.com. The Tacoma Horticultural Club is hosting their next meeting on Wednesday, November 15th from 7 to 9 p.m. and it is themed Your Gardening Questions Answered bring your gardening questions and submit them at the start of the meeting and then a panel of garden experts will address them. It is free and open to all and takes place at the Tacoma Park Fire Stations Community Room at 7201 Carroll Avenue in downtown Tacoma Park, Maryland. And an online session you can attend from anywhere is the natureforward.org Conversation cafe and it is entitled Yes in My HOA Back and Front Yard. And that is nature writer and humane gardener founder, Nancy Lawson, as she hosts a panel discussion among leading experts who've been on the front lines of advocating in Maryland and Virginia for allowing low impact native habitat landscaping in HOAs and common interest communities. There is a registration fee of 10 to $15. And again, you can find out more about that at natureforward.org. Happy gardening.
2: Well, hey there garden lovers. This is Ray Eaton, founder of Discover Garden Tours. I'm here to invite you all to join us next April and experience the beauty of Dutch gardening and horticulture on our Discover the Netherlands tour. Please join us and speaker, author, and social media influencer, Kathy Gents for this once-in-a-lifetime garden adventure. We'll visit private and public gardens, flower shows and auctions, and much, much more. Highlights include the Kuchenhof Gardens, Hortus Botanicus Leiden, and the Flora Holland Flower auction. The tour dates are from April 16th through April 25th, 2024. Full details and registration are available on our website at discoverourtours.com. Remember, space is limited, so if you don't want to miss out, I would highly recommend signing up today. We look forward to seeing you in the Netherlands and sharing this unforgettable journey together.
3: area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Get low-maintenance alternative salons with the new book Ground Cover Revolution by Kathy Jets. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in homeownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer-resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at quarter.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30.
4: This is the last word on Fun with Pumpkins by Christy Page at the Food Gardening Network. It is officially fall. Oh, how I love this time of year. I love the crisp air, brisk mornings, and crunch of frost beneath my feet. The afternoons bring sunshine, a hint of warmth in the air, and the sounds of kids coming home from school. There's so much color everywhere. We still see the lingering green in the grass. Trees are alive with various jeweled tones before they drop their leaves for the winter. Along the ground, you can see patches of orange. It is pumpkin season. Pumpkins are such a versatile plant. How many other vegetables can you use for cooking, baking, snacking, and decorating? It seems like once the frost is on the ground, I start seeing pumpkins everywhere. They are popping up at farm stands, grocery stores, and even in some backyards. We have grown our own over the years, but love the selections that we can get at some of the larger farm stands. Growing up, my girls loved picking up their pumpkins each year. It was always an adventure and something that I had to set a lot of time aside for. I have a tendency to choose one fairly quickly. I like a small to medium-sized pumpkin that is pretty round, and I never mind a blemish or two. It just adds a little character. My daughters have very different tastes and ideas. My oldest daughter always wants a pumpkin that is perfectly symmetrical or as close as possible with a bright orange color. She already knows what she wants to carve and is looking for a shape that supports that. One year, she might be looking for something short and round, and the next, something taller and skinnier. My youngest daughter wants the biggest one she can find. She'll look at it, lift it, reject a lot of them before she finally decides. She may have an idea of what she wants to carve before choosing, but it almost always changes once she starts. One thing that we can all agree on is the process. We make sure that it is night where we don't have to rush out for anything else. We line the table with newspapers and get to work. We carefully scrape out the insides, making sure to save all the seeds. We rinse them carefully, put them on a cookie sheet with salt and just a touch of pepper, and let them start roasting while we work on our carving designs. Each year, we all try to do something different. We have had years where we tried shadowing, which really was not much of a success, We've done traditional freehand carving and even some more intricate work with stencils and stamps. The end results are always fun, but what is even more fun is the process. The house smells of fresh pumpkin and roasting seeds, there's a lot of laughter and joking about each other's designs, and there's a feeling of accomplishment when the jack-o-lanterns are complete. After cleaning up, we put candles and our new jack-o-lanterns, snack on fresh roasted pumpkin seeds and admire our handiwork. We will keep them on display through Halloween before they get sent to the compost pile. It's hard to believe that a vegetable can give us so much enjoyment. Well, this was the last word on Fun with Pumpkins with Christy Page at foodgardening.com.
0: You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardner, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.